The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Thank you guys. Sound like Stephen Wolf's version of uh, King of Love, My Shepherd. You'll be singing that bass note the rest of the week. Uh, well, if you, if you want to follow along in your app or, or um, in the bulletin, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1924, I want to tell you about a great man. His name's Eric Little. The Summer Olympics were hosted by the city of Paris, and if some of you remember the story, and children, you may not be familiar with the story, there was a devout Christian, and he was a Scottish Christian, and they took the Sabbath very seriously. And so Eric Little refused to run, even though he was picked to run the 100-meter dash because he had won the qualifying uh, heats, and they thought that he'd be the best one to represent their country for this event. But because it was run on a Sunday, he said no, he would not run. And so all of Scotland felt like Eric Little was betraying them. And yet Eric Little believed he would be betraying the Lord if he ran on Sunday. But since the Olympic schedule had been published several months in advance, Little had looked through the schedule and made his decision that he would instead compete for the 400 meter race, which wasn't his best meet. He was best in the 100, then the 200, and then the 400. And so his pre-Olympic time was 49.6, a decent time, but certainly not a guaranteed medal time by any stretch. And on the morning of the Olympics, the 400 meter final, July 11, 1924, some of you may recall from the movie, Chariots of Fire, or if you read it, he was handed a piece of paper by uh, one of the trainers and he opened it up and it said, in the old book, it says, he that honors me, I will honor, which was a verse from uh, 1 Samuel 2.30. It said, wishing you the best of success always. And little was lifted in his spirit that somebody else believed in him uh, besides his coaches. And as you may uh, guess, or you may already know, he won, he was in the outer lanes the outer lane, okay, which means you're way out in front of everybody. They start you way out in front. And so he had, he was the carrot that everybody was chasing. And he had a philosophy on how to run the 400. This is how we should run the Christian life. You ready? Here it is. The secret of my success over the 400 meters is that I run the first 200 meters as fast as I can. Then for the second 200 meters, with God's help, I run faster. And that's what he did. He said that he ran as hard as he could for the first 200, but he knew that everybody was chasing him. So he just turned in the whole thing into a whole sprint. And he set a world record, an Olympic record, 47.6 seconds. Now, the great beauty of Eric Little's life and, and the quote there of how he ran the 400 meter, that's actually how he lived his life. You see, Eric Little was born in 1902, and he died in 1945. He only lived 43 years. He was born in China to Scottish missionary parents. He attended boarding school near London and spent time with his family in Edinburgh. 
and afterwards he attended the university there. And then after the Olympics in 1924, 1925, he returned to China to serve as a missionary. And aside from two brief furloughs in, in Scotland, he remained in China until his death as a missionary in a Japanese civilian internment camp. In 1945, he died five months before being liberated. You see, Eric Little was following the Apostle Paul, who was following Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do not run. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a very important text for everybody in this room. For we're all in a race. We're all running for something. And I pray that you, Lord, we would, we would know what we should be running for, what we should be living for, that we were made for good works, created in Christ Jesus, that you have prepared in advance for us to walk in them. And so we ask for your help that we would do these good works, that we would love you, that we would know the love that you have for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. What we have before us here in this three verses Two word pictures, one command, one promise, and one warning. I'm sure you picked those all up, right? All right, here they are. Two word pictures. You got a word picture of running and one of boxing. So the first one, I mean, it begins in 924 just saying, do you not know that in a race, and actually it's in a stadium is the literal. In the stadium, all the runners run. Like, and everybody exerts effort. That's a no-brainer. Everybody's trying hard. But only one gets the prize. So he's saying, don't you know, this is how this Christian life is to be run. Run in a way to get the prize. Run differently. And so that's the first word picture is running. And then he, this word picture of boxing is he says he doesn't, you know, he's not a shadow boxer. He's not, um, the idea is he's not wasting his energy. Boxing and running are very, very tiring sports. I'm not good at either one. And um, boxing apparently is very fatiguing. And so you want to save your punches and make them count. And so if you're just swinging wildly, that's not going to do you any good. But the metaphor is very interesting because he says, I discipline my body. Doesn't that sound nice in verse 27? It literally means this in the original language. I give myself a black eye. That's literally what that Greek word means. He turns the illustration and says, I discipline my body, I beat my body. I give myself the black eye. I gotta keep myself under control because the flesh is deceitful. And so he's gotta rein in his flesh and he has to exert uh, influence over his flesh by the Spirit's help to put sin to death. And so he t gives these word pictures of how we're to 
run this Christian life? Well, obviously, we're talking effort. Grace is not opposed to effort in the Christian life, okay? So the Bible says a lot about make every effort. And so everybody would have known what Paul was talking about because every two years, the Isthmian Games would be right there in Corinth. And the contestants would have to go into strict training and they would have to be there for 10 months and you'd have to prove to qualify, otherwise you would be disqualified, which he gets at in verse 27. So the idea is 10 months of intense training. And so the games would have been held in AD 49 and Paul arrived in AD 51 and the games would have been going on then and then when they're now he's writing the letter and this is AD 53 or 55, they would have been, you know, the games would have been going on then. So when he refers to this, they know exactly what he's talking about. Strict training, diet, sleep, and exercise are extremely important. Um, and this is true today. Um, Tyler Hamilton has a book called The Secret Race Inside the Hidden World of Tour de France. So he was one of the teammates of Lance Armstrong, and he's one of the guys who kind of reveals all in the book. And he, te he talks about one of his stories. He says he almost won the Tour of Italy, but on the last mountain stage with three kilometers to go, that's not much, three kilometers of cycling, to go in the final climb, I ran out of energy, bonked, hit the wall. I ended up finishing second to the Italian known as the Falcon. I made a classic mistake. I felt so good and so strong that I forgot to eat enough. One of his teammates said afterwards that I was probably 100 calorie energy gel away from winning the race. You plan for months, you work harder than you've ever worked in your life, and in the end you lose because you didn't eat a gel, a 100 calorie gel. It's important. And so Paul's talking about beating his body making his slave. And so the imperative, there's only one command in the passage. You guys catch that in verse 24? The end of verse 24, he says, so run, so run that you may obtain it. And the idea here is that there's gonna be uh, this word agonizomai for the competing as this word, there's agony. There's gonna be pain involved. No pain, no gain, right? And so, Run to receive the prize. Run that you may obtain it. And this is going to look different for each of us depending on where we are in life. You're going to run a little different. I'm going to give you three examples. Okay, so one is a, a younger example, a little bit older example, and then a, a senior example. All right, three examples of running that you may obtain it. The first is Jonathan Edwards' description of Sarah Pierpont. Sierra Parapont became Sarah Edwards. But Jonathan Edwards took an eye on her. I just want you to ask yourself, children, adults, how old of a person is he describing here? He says this. This is Jonathan Edwards, 1700s. They say there's a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that great being who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. 
that she expects after a while to be received up where he is, to be raised up out of the world and caught up into heaven, being assured that he loves her too well to let her remain at a distance from him always. There she is to dwell with him and to be ravished with his love and delight forever. She has a strange sweetness in her mind and singular purity in her affections, is most just and conscientious in all her conduct, and you could not persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you could give her all the world, lest she should offend this great being. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves, and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. She was 13 years old. You don't have to be 31, young people, to start loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can start when you're five, and you can run until you're 95 and beyond. Start young. What a wonderful example. 13 years old. It's clear who she loved. One of the major problems we have in our culture is distractions. I have distractions, so this is a lot for me. I recently met, Ben and I went to a Nationals game, and we, we, we met a Christian guy, that Ben already knew the guy, but he footed the bill for about 35 pastors to enjoy a box suite at a Nationals game, okay? This was like paying for a wedding reception, okay? Which was nothing for him. And, but what impressed me about him was not his money or how young he was. He was so unassuming. And when I got to talk to him, he has a flip phone. And I'm like, huh, you're like Gibbs. And he looks at me, he looks at me and says, who's Gibbs? I'm like, and I'm like, ah, NCIS, you know, Jethro, he's always, you know, got this flip phone, you know. He wasn't familiar with NCIS. And so, so I, he, I said to him, what's the deal with the flip phone? Explain that to me. And he just said, the iPhone works for some people, but for me, it was so distracting. He said, I want to be there for my kids. And he said, I, I, was, I just get so distracted, I'd be watching videos or even a movie instead of talking to my kids. In other words, what he was saying was, I wasn't running well. I wasn't running well. You see, here's what's coming in on us. Let's just be reminded what's going on. Every second, just now, 6,000 tweets were sent out on Twitter, which corresponds to 350,000 tweets per minute, 500 million tweets per day, and 200 billion tweets per, per year. That's tweets coming at you. Now we got email. And email has continued to increase in traffic 5% a year. It keeps going up 5%. How can this be? So now we're, we're, we're to a point where the average office worker is receiving 121 emails per day. And between sending and receiving emails, business emails, consumer emails, junk mail, and personal correspondence, the average human being that's on the internet and has email is corresponding with 246 emails a day. And I'm wondering why you didn't read the email this week that I sent out. Well, you had 245 other ones to choose from. We haven't even gotten to texting. We haven't even gotten to social media. We haven't even gotten to Netflix. We haven't even gotten to entertainment. 
We hadn't even gotten to Redbox. We hadn't even gotten to movies. Texting for 200, please. These stats are dated. This is 2015, which means that's ancient. 2015, people will send, this is people were sending 8.3 trillion text messages in that year alone. That's almost 23 billion texts per day or almost 16 million texts per minute. Over 6 billion text messages are sent in the U.S. every day. And you wonder why people are texting on the phone while they're driving. So 18 to 24-year-olds receive an average of 3,853 text messages per month. In a 30-day month, that's just over 128 texts per day. Now, here's the two closing kickers. American adults who use smartphones, they spend an average of 73.8 hours a month on apps, which comes out to two and a half hours a day on their phone. Last but not least, the average person will spend more than five years of their life on social media. Five years of your life on social media. That kind of scared me, reading that. Is that really what I want to say? Man, I really ran to obtain it. I really ran well. I'm running to get that prize. Five years of your life. Now, the interesting thing is where I'm going with this is actually, we still got to engage the culture. It's not to hibernate. You could, get, you could, you could do the... the, the the uh, flip phone thing, he's still texting, he's still using his phone, he still looks at email, he's still engaged, but you have to choose and make hard decisions because my concern in all this is I'm, th- I'm throwing out all these things. It's hard to be Sarah Pierpont and, and do this, isn't it? It's hard to do both, isn't it? And I, I think serious Bible reading is going down while this is going up. What books of the Bible are you currently reading and enjoying? Are you reading a book? Are you loving a book of the Bible right now? Are you in it? Are you running well because you just love the Word of God and you want to know more about this Savior? Are we getting distracted little by little with the tweets and the, and the text and the emails and all these things can just poof? All right, last illustration. So you got Sarah. Pierpont, then you've got the middle-aged, or the, all the distractions that come. And then for someone like J.I. Packer, he's 92 years old, and he's still running well. He wrote a book a little, about two years ago called Finishing Our Course with Joy. He talks about the last lap. I shared this before. He says, the biblical expectation, and indeed promise of ripeness, growing, and serving of others, Continuing as we age with God is the substance of the last lap image of our closing years in which we finish our course. Runners in a distance, distance race, like jockeys in a horse race, always try to keep something in reserve for a final spring. And my contention is going to be that so far as bodily health allows, we should aim to be found running the last lap of the race of the Christian life, as we would say, flat out. The final spring, so I urge, should be a sprint indeed. Can't you just hear him in his last days giving us a charge? 
And he says, for retired folks, here's the problem. He says, you're off the treadmill and out of the rat race. Now at last, you're your own man or woman and you can concentrate on having fun. You got your pension, you got health services there to look after your body. Games, parties, and entertainments are provided in abundance to help you pass the time. So go ahead and practice and be self-indulgent up to the limit. Fill your life with novelties and hobbies and anything and everything that will hold your interest. As far as society is concerned, you're now on the shelf. You have only yourself with or without your spouse to please and look after and worry about. So concentrate on that and live as if, as if your life of retirement with enough health and strength for daily functioning will go on forever, being constantly lengthened by modern medical magic. You are entitled to be cared for as long as you live, as long as your life can be made to last. So make the most of it. If your old age is dreary and boring, it will be entirely your own fault and you don't want that. And here's what he says to that. I see this agenda, well meant as it is, as wrong-headed in the extreme. I think it's ironically deceptive, calculated in effect, to produce the precise opposite of the fullness of elderly life that it purports to promote. What is wrong with it? For the moment, I leave aside its lack of Christian content and focused on the fact that it prescribes idleness, self-indulgence and irresponsibility as the goal of one's declining years. This over time will produce, will generate a burdensome sense that one's life is no longer significant but has become quite simply useless. What are you running for? What are you living for? There's a throwing away that's taking place with all of us. Along the race, depending on which race you're running this morning, you're either throwing away your confidence, which has a great reward, eternal life, Hebrews talks about it, or you're throwing away everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and you're making hard choices of getting rid of things. We recently cut cable, cut our home phone. Now, we did it primarily out of financial motivations. And I gotta tell you, I went through a little withdrawals. I mean, not having the NFL network, not having a lot of, all the Nationals games I could watch, can't watch any of them now. And you know what? I can actually say it's been a good thing because the, the, the dribble just dribbles, you know, and I'm often reading behind, but you know, as I'm watching, but you know, it's kind of nice to just, you know what? We all have to make choices. I'm not saying cut your cable. If that's what you need to do, then, then cut it. But where are you cutting back so that you can get more of God, so that you can run better? What are you throwing off? You see, the throwing off reveals the race you're running. Are you throwing off bitterness? And every root of bitterness that wants to spring up within you and cause you to trip, Satan's stiff jab. How about anger, fornication, jealousy, pornography, sexual immorality? Are you throwing off the habit of meeting together with other Christians? Ah, blow off that meeting with the guys. Blow off that small group. I got other stuff going on. Ravens are playing Steelers tonight. Got other stuff. You see, your priorities determine the race you're running. And the Bible puts it like this. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from his nature or his flesh will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. 
So let's not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, he, he described there's, there's, there's three different worlds. There is a world of hatred, there is a world of love, and there's the world we live in. The world of hate is hell. And people are going there and becoming more and more hellish and hateful all the time. Hateful and hating one another. And that's the race they're running. And they're actually moving gradually in a slippery slope towards hell. Where there is hellish beings and demons. And all they do is hate. And everybody there hates. And it is a terrible demonic world with a devil of hate. That's a bad place. The other world is a world of love. Where everybody loves one another perfectly. God is love, and his love is manifested in all its fullness. Heaven is a world of love. And then there's the world that we live in, where there's a mixture. And if you saw the news this week, you probably saw more hate than love coming out of Senate Judiciary Committee. And you get real frustrated, and hopefully you didn't go towards the world of hate, but you continue to love and to pray. And we're in a race. Which world are you headed towards? Are you growing in love and, and, and sacrificing for others, doing hard things, or are you serving yourself? We're constantly tempted to drop anchor here and to be tempted to love this world and to think this world is better than any world to come. And we live by sight rather than by faith and we begin to drift and we become sluggish, dull, and lazy and, and the alarm bells are going off. The, the Bible's calling us, we have need of endurance. And Paul says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. And you have to ask yourself, what is Paul saying when he says, running away to get the prize? What's the prize? Well, the prize is eternal life. But the eternal life is something that Jesus Christ gives to us. It's a gift. We don't work for it. But if we're truly his people, whose spirit now has come into our life, then we begin to be conformed to his image. And he begins to change us. And we, he doesn't just save us to, to warm a pew. He doesn't save us to sit on the sidelines. He created you in Christ Jesus to do what? To do the good works which he created and prepare in advance for you to walk in them. And so we have to pray and figure out and wrestle and, and work through what are the things that he would have me do and how should I spend my life? It's also described this prize as a crown of righteousness. Paul says, I fought the good fight in 2 Timothy 4. I finished the, the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So this race, it, the winner is all who follow Jesus and all who prove that they were truly his by running well and not quitting. And then they're awarded with this righteousness, which we would call glorification. And even the idea here of putting on the, the perishable and, and you know, the, the idea here is he says, these runners in Corinth, they're running these Isthmian games. And you know what they're running? You know what they, you know what they got as a prize? 
And everybody knew this because, you know, Paul's kind of picking on this. You know, we're getting something that's imperishable. They're getting this perishable wreath. They would actually get a pine cone, a pine uh, thing, and, it, and before that it was, it was celery. Wouldn't that be nice to have, just have a celery crown or, and then change it to pine? How long does that last? About three weeks, maybe? That's it. And it was kind of a laugh. Like, and then Paul's saying, look, these guys are giving all of their life to get on that thing on their head. And we're going to run for something different, to get a crown of righteousness that's unfading. It's imperishable. And guess what else is imperishable? We who are perishable are putting on the imperishable. We are getting glorified bodies like his glorious body. John Piper put it like this. He says, this race of life has eternal consequences, not because grace is nullified by the way we run, but because grace is verified by the way we run. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored, or I ran, or I fought more exceedingly than all, yet it was not I, but the grace of God, which was within me. That's 1 Corinthians 15.10. So Paul's running did not nullify the purpose of grace, it verified the power of grace. I like that. And so for us, as we think this through, we, I think the tendency is to say, well, let's, Let's just pull away. Let's just pull away from this world. Let's pull back. Let's retreat. And think about what Ben preached last week. And look at this text in in context. Because the whole text, most people preach 19 to 27 as win, 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 right? We're going to win all. We're becoming all things to all people in order to win some. And for Paul, this was, I mean, to become, to win his brother's, you know, he becomes like a Jew. Imagine what that was like for poor Timothy. I mean, poor Timothy, I mean, his, Timothy's father is a Gentile and his mother is, a, is, is Jewish and so he's half, but he's not circumcised and he would have been considered, his mother would have been considered, you know, a, a who cave in to marry this Gentile. And so Paul says, all right, you wanna do ministry with me? We're going to become all things to all people. We're going to have you circumcised. Not because you did for salvation. This is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of contextualization. And we need, we need to become all things so we can win more Jews. We need to become like them so you'll be credible. And Timothy's probably saying, Paul, are you sure about this? <laughs> this comes with a cost. Paul did weird things. How about that Nazarite vow? I mean, what in the world was that? Paul comes back to the Jews, bringing, bringing an offering from the Gentiles that he's collected for years, brings it back to Jerusalem, and James pulls him aside and says, look, all these Jews think that you don't really care about Jewish traditions anymore, and you're just a big Gentile lover, and you don't care about them. So how about doing this Nazarite vow? We'll shave your head as a thank offering, and only Samson, John the Baptist, and, and Samuel did a Nazarite vow, but Paul did this Nazarite vow thing. Why? What in the world is he doing that for? because he's becoming all things to all people in order to win some. And so for us, it means we have to engage our community by contextualizing. It doesn't say, you know, to, to, the, to the thief I became a thief and to the adulterer I became an adulterer. That's not what it says, okay? We're not changing the message. We're just blending in so that we can get a hearing so that we can give the message of the gospel, okay? so. When Paul is saying here about running in such a way to get the prize, think John 17, 
where Jesus says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, as I'm not of the world, so sanctify them in your truth, and as you've sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. So we are a sent people into the world, and yet we're not to be taken out of the world, and yet we are to be distinct and different as we're engaging in that world. And so in light of that, I want you to hear this quote because it made me think of this text of 1 Corinthians 9 in a whole different light because I've, I've given you this text and I think I've mainly thought about it as a personal race for holiness. When you think of this text, do you think first table of law or second table of law? Like is this telling me that I, I should be radical about loving my neighbor or about how I need to just be disciplined and run in the race for my own personal holiness? But in context, think about this. This is what Stephen Um says. He's a pastor up in, near Boston, PCA pastor. He says these verses are very well known and are typically used to talk about how we need to discipline in order to run the race of the Christian life. That's certainly true, and we ought to be concerned about that, but this wasn't Paul's point. Now, I would take issue with that. I think it's part of Paul's point. His point was that the discipline is absolutely essential not to our progress in the Christian life, but to our witness to the world. Here's the reason why, he says. It's so much easier for a Christian to retreat to his safe enclave instead of staying in the world. It takes a lot of work and intentional focus to know one's neighbors and the broader culture, to feel their hopes, discern their questions. It's even harder to be able to do all that without the safety net of our subcultural jargon. It takes work and intentional focus. It requires discipline. Paul compares it to the rigorous training to which an athlete would subject himself. A Christian cannot expect to witness well without a tremendous amount of effort any more than he could expect to be an effective athlete without it. The discipline to stay in takes rigorous training and voracious effort. Believers should be encouraged to cultivate their cultural agility, to discipline themselves intellectually. So add that to your list of how you look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. As Kenneth Bailey, this great missionary in the Arab world, he said, he says, all his life in one way or another, Paul had to beat his body in order to cross cultural lines and fulfill his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. He warns his readers that the task of all things to all people takes enormous effort and energy. He's discussing the cost of cross-cultural incarnational mission. As they prepared for the Isthmian Games, athletes in Corinth submitted their bodies to intense discipline. Paul pummeled his body in order to be a faithful witness to the church. And so he says then, he says, having spent 40 years of my life trying to cross cultural lines in the world of the forgotten faithful who are the millions of Arab-speaking Christians in the Middle East, I can witness to the profound truth of what Paul is affirming. Language, cultural, history, art, literature, politics, worldview, music, civil rest, and, un and war all must be experienced, comprehended, and embraced if one is to effectively enter into another culture. Short bursts of exertion are not enough. So, this is a really profound text. It refers to all the law. It, not just our personal holiness, but also how do we love our neighbors? How do we reach them? So the promise is we're gonna get something permanent. And then lastly, the warning. Well, how many of you guys have heard of Rosie Ruiz? She was the lady who ran the Boston Marathon in 1980 and she won without hardly breaking a sweat. Now, she looked good afterwards, and her, and her, and her hair looked good, and, and people said 
It was weird. Nobody saw her for the first 25 miles. And in her interview after the race, the, inter the lady who interviewed her, who was a running expert, asked her, well, tell us about your intervals. What were your in and she said, what's an interval? And so she was instantly suspicious. So they began to do their due diligence about Rosie, who had her moment of glory, and they discovered that she had cheated. She had taken a taxi. And she was further discovered that the way she qualified for the Boston Marathon was the New York City Marathon, in which earlier that year she became in 24th place. She had achieved that feat by taking the train. And it was discovered that's how she got qualified for the Boston Marathon. So she got her moment of glory, but it was quickly faded to embarrassment and, sh and shame as she was disqualified. And Paul is warning here about being disqualified. Now, none of us are going to be rosies doing something that brazen but I wonder if Tyler Hamilton's story is more like the world we live in. Listen to this. So Tyler Hamilton lived in the age of steroid uh, drug use, not just steroids, but uh, basically all the, all the main A riders in the Tour de France were all cheating. And this is how he described it. I tried to ignore the white bags at first, but I quickly came to hate them. I thought often about them often. When I felt an A-team rider pass me, I thought of the white bags. When I felt exhausted and ready to drop, I thought of the white bags. When I worked my tail off and still couldn't come close to competing in the race, I thought of the white bags. In a way, they served as my fuel. They made me push myself harder than I'd ever pushed because I wanted to prove that I was better, I was stronger than some little bag. I went to the edge, tasted the blood in my mouth day after day, and for a while it worked, but then I started to break down. Here's an interesting number. He says, a thousand days. It's roughly the number of days between the day I became a professional rider and the day I doped for the first time. Talking to other riders of this era and hearing their stories, it seems to be a pattern. Those of us who doped mostly started during our third year. First year, Neopro. Excited to be there, young pup, hopeful. Second year, realization. Third year, clarity. Road, fork in the road. Yes or no, in or out. Everybody has their thousand days. Everybody has their choice. In some, day, in some ways, it's depressing, but other ways, I think it's human. 1,000 mornings of waking up with hope. 1,000 afternoons of being crushed. 1,000 days of bumping painfully against the walls at the edge of your limits trying to find a way past. 1,000 days of getting signals that doping is okay. Signals from powerful people you trust and admire. Signals that say, I'll be fine, and everybody's doing it. And beneath all that, the fear that if you don't find some way to ride faster, that your career is over. What's the little white bag in your world? The little tug that says, just cave here. It'll be okay. Everybody else is doing it. You see, Bilbo was right when he said, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. And the purpose of Paul's writing here is he's telling these people, you go into the temple and you eat their food, you're going off the road. You're getting disqualified. You can't dine with demons. There are certain things that you just got to come out from and be separate. And for each of us, there is a leaving something so that you can cleave to Christ. And that's what we're talking about in running this race. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you purify and refine each of us in our faith that we would see the world for what it is and that we'd expect not much from it. 
but that, Lord, we would have great expectation, that we would desire a better country, a heavenly one, that you would not be ashamed of us. Lord, may we love you more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.